Commencing countdown. Three, two, one. This is the Contracting Experience. Connecting government contracting professionals to the world around them through conversations with acquisition influencers, insights into evolving hot topics, and sharing lessons learned from the field. On this episode of the Contracting Experience Podcast, we welcome Major Randy Mullen to share his experiences with deployments in support of the United States military. Major Mullen discusses what he did to prepare for deployments and what missions he supported. He also shares tough challenges he faced, successes he had with his teams, and how his deployments have shaped his outlook as a leader in the Air Force. Welcome Major Randy Mullen to the podcast. Well, thank you, Amber. Really excited to be here. Yeah. So today we're going to talk deployments and you actually returned this last March from a deployment right around the time that the COVID pandemic was popping off. And I think we'll maybe get to a story on that later in our in our discussion. But for your first question, can you tell the listeners uh, where you've deployed, because this was actually your third deployment, and what missions you supported on those deployments? Yeah, so uh, my first deployment um, as a lieutenant back in 2011 um, was to Afghanistan. And so um, I was stationed at a little board operating base, uh, Sharana. What I did there was I was an administrative contracting officer um, on the log cap contract. So worked uh, with DCMA at the time. And um, what we did was managed all the basic life support services there. Uh, so, you know, services, uh, construction and commodities, essentially. So I did that for six, seven months. And then shortly after I returned from there, I got tasked to go down to Kosovo. Um, and so I supported um, a deployment there as a gap filler for three months. Um, and so uh, that was a NATO deployment, very unique opportunity to work with a number of different uh, nations and organizations there. Really great time down there. Um, and I worked at, again as a contracting officer, chief of the office there, and uh, we did sealed bidding, again, services, constructions and commodities and things like that. And so my most recent deployment um, where I got back, like you said, in uh, March of 2020 uh, was to Kuwait. Originally, uh, it was supposed to be to Iraq, but um, I ended up staying in Kuwait, and uh, there I was on the uh, camp at Camp Arif John, so it was an army base. And um, what I did there was I was on the uh, Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve, so CJTFOIR, um, headquarters staff in the CJ4 Logistics Directorate um, as the Deputy Chief, De- Deputy OXIC Chief. That has been um, kind of my deployment history in a nutshell. Yeah. So it sounds like you you were in several different roles um, back from 2011 to up to 2020. So what role did you fill when you were in Kuwait? Again, I was the deputy OXIC chief and uh, OXIC standing for Operational Contract Support Integration Cell. And so what that does, it's a long, long fancy term to basically say we take the requirements from the requirement owners, whoever that is, and we help shape and form their requirements 
and translate that um, into you know senior leadership speak so for example mm -hmm. somebody needs um, non-tactical vehicles that's a very hot commodity out in the um, in Iraq and Syria and places like that uh, so if they need those vehicles you know those are very heavily scrutinized because um, those requirements are just always coming in and mm -hmm. so what we do is we help them shape the message we say okay we help them you know formulate a presentation um, both in powerpoint and in in verbal get them in front of the decision makers so we had the joint requirements review board and we just help them get into that schedule and then get those requirements in front of the decision makers and help them formulate that so we could take a approved package and provide it over to the contracting shop whether that's stateside whether we did reach back support or whether you know it was done in theater and so that was uh, a big aspect of what the um what the oxic did one of the other things that we really focused on was um, supporting senior leadership um, in any questions that they had and so we were that business advisor um, to those senior leaders you know a number of one stars and a number of oh sixes um, because you know, as as all contracting folks are well aware of, folks outside of contracting really don't understand contracting that well. And so it was our job to really educate, again, those requirement owners, to educate um, our senior leaders um, and, and really uh, give them the tools so they can make the decisions on how to su best support the operation. Right. It almost sounds like you're like the senior communications manager over there because you're trying to help manage you know expectations from different parties and also help them understand where the different groups are coming from as far as requirements and and getting um, things approved so that way they can move forward and be purchased and acquired yeah absolutely that's absolutely what we did so we had a we had a really solid team um, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't you know kind of explain how we were set up but Again, we were in the logistics um, directorate on staff and uh, the OXIC team. I had a chief who was a major army major, really great guy that um, really let us, you know, the folks that were 64 P's um, kind of run the day to day operations. Um, and so he had our backs being able to speak army language because the staff was composed primarily of army personnel. Mm -hmm. And so we really had a great working dynamic there. I also had another 64P captain, uh, Captain Heather Shepard. She was phenomenal. She was the one that ran our requirements review board, you know, really did a phenomenal job there. And then I also had two DCMA uh, civilians on the team that really uh, did a phenomenal job in working packages to get through the gerb and then also working a lot of basic life support things and just other um, taskers that came up. And so we had a, just a fantastic team on staff where mm -hmm. uh, they really supported the mission and helped us get us get the requirements through and help the warfighter get what they needed. Right. I, I think you made an point, uh, important point that um, to be foot stomped for all teams, um, not just ones in theater, but all teams that are working in their acquisition teams and working with requirements owners is just the ability to try to better understand where the other person is coming from or where the other organization is coming from. And yeah. also, you know, taking time out to build those relationships and communicate with people. Because a lot of times, as you know, and 
people that have been out there and have dealt in different programs and try to get things on contract, that's where a lot of things can get left behind or missed is um, people making assumptions about what other people might know or understand when sometimes it just takes maybe a phone call or a couple phone calls to really better understand where each other's coming from. So that way you can get the best, you know, written requirement that you need or the best contract and um, make the best negotiation positions. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the things we really um, had to focus on is building those relationships. Um, and that given the short amount of time, you know, six months, yeah, it is a long time to be deployed, but it's also a short amount of time to build relationships where, you know, everyone's kind of trusting one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just over time and, and having the right processes in place and, and building that um, understanding that we were there to help the customer, um, to help the requirements owners and to provide that that solid business advice. Um, we really developed a, a team environment where we were the trusted um, advisors, you know, people had come to us for processes that weren't even in our control right. and were asking us how to get things done. Because as that integrator, we really needed to know all everybody up, everybody else's processes at the same time. So we could be effective at ours and being, right. you know, being able to provide that, that proper advice. You know, we did things like, you know, every Saturday we would run through everyone's requirements, uh, making sure that they understood where their um, requirements rack and stack through the process, uh, through the approval process. You know, we set up bi-weekly meetings with um, some of our more challenging customers just so we could focus on them specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we were always ready and prepared when we whenever, whenever we went to senior meetings um, because the questions that, you know, the one star would always have is, hey, okay, if I get this on contract, you know, what's that going to mean six months down the road? What kind of flexibilities will I have? Will I be able to surge or will I be able to, um, you know, de-scope or, you know, those kind of questions. And um, we always really had to be prepared and on our game. So this next question, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, as, as somebody that's living your life professionally and personally, you know, you get into your routine and things that you, you, you need to um, get done. So what did you do to prepare for your deployment? My tasking came down probably eight months before the date I was actually supposed to leave. So I had a long runway um, to get prepared. Now I was very comfortable in what the deployment process looks like and who the key players are, such as the you know unit deployment manager, what his or her role is and things like that and how you know the personnel section comes into play and when my orders get cut, very familiar with all that. But for the newer folks, it's, it's, it's critically important that they understand, you know, what those members are supposed to do, how they're supposed to help you get you your proper gear and things like that. And so, you know, that, that was kind of the easier side for me. But one of the things that I really want to stress kind of just to everybody, especially the newer folks that have never deployed before, um, if you're fortunate to have the time to prepare, um, you know, sometimes those last minute taskings come down and, you know, it's a tough situation. So, you know, we should always be preparing and, and that, that's just a, a fact of uh, the military life. But, but if you do have the luxury of time, you know, one of the things that from my first two deployments that I've learned and carried through is um, I took 
an extra amount of time off to really spend with my family. I'm, I'm a family guy. I'm, you know, happily married with two little kids. And, you know, normally in the summertime, I'll take about 10 days off or so. But knowing that I had a deployment coming up, I took three weeks off, four weeks in total throughout the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and three weeks all in one shot, which I had never really done before. And I'm so glad, so glad that I did and that I, it was approved um, because those are just moments that, um, you know, that, you know, I remember for the rest of my life, being able to spend that time, you know, we w- went back home, you know, visited a family and enjoyed California and Southern California. Um, so that was one of the big things that I did. Um, another one, of course, is the pre-deployment training that, you know, nearly everybody has to go through. So, you know, I, I went to that, those um, two trainings. One was at Shaw Air Force Base and another was at, you know, Fort Dix McGuire, get to play Army for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, enjoyed my time there, you know, took in as much as I could, learned as much as I could. But that's just going to be something that, you know, everybody has to do. So I'm not going to really go into that because, you know, every deployment is going to be a little different. Another thing I did for, um, for my personal well-being is um, I went on a, a one-week men's retreat, you know, faith-based retreat, um, where I really was able to just kind of separate myself and enjoy uh, nature and enjoy um, being around other believers. And so, you know, something to really um, lift up your spirit and, you know, being able to um, really focus on that, on the things that are important to me before I set off on this journey for six, seven months. Also on top of that, staying in shape was really critical for me, really important. Um, I didn't want to get into the into the deployment environment feeling out of shape already. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that you know the first you know the first month or two is you know soup is really there's a lot going on and um, you know if you're just not in tip top shape, um, the stresses can kind of you know weaken your immune system and kind of just um, you know that kind of be tough on the body. So I knew I wanted to go into the deployment healthy, strong, and ready to hit the ground running. And so I really focused on, you know, eating, you know, really healthy, exercising. And the other thing, one of the, one of the, probably the most important thing that I did, Amber, was, um, you know, I picked up, I picked up this book. It's called uh, Faith, Hope, Love, and Deployments. Um, And it's 40 devotions for, uh, for military couples. And so uh, my wife and I each got a copy of this book. Um, And so what it does is, you know, each you could separate it by week or, you know, month or whatever, however many you want to do. But it goes through topics that you and your wife or you and your spouse can um, read together. And then at the end of it, you know, it's just a couple pages. At the end of it, it'll ask you questions just on topics like separation or pride or trust or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, contentment, love, just things like that. And, you know, you can share, you can share, um, your thoughts. You write these, you know, little letters down and you share this with your spouse. And what's important there is really keeping the lines of communication open with your spouse. Um, and that is a, a very intentional way of making sure that you're keeping your spouse um, updated and that you're keeping the lines of communication open. That's definitely one of the things that I probably didn't do as good of a job on, on my first two deployments. 
I really want to stress this area, Amber, because, you know, in the military, we can have a, a, uh, you know, I've got it, you know, kind of this pride where it's like, hey, you know, there's no issues in my family, there's no issues in my household. But the reality is, and I've seen it firsthand, is, you know, a deployment can make or break a relationship. Um, And it's done so and I've seen it. um, And it's sad. It's really sad, especially when kids are involved. So, you know, I've always said, you know, in a deployment, you're either your relationship with your spouse is either growing or it's dying. It's not anything in between. Mm-hmm. And I've been on both ends of that. And so right. that's one of the reasons why this book was so, so critical for me uh, and my wife uh, and just making sure that, again, um, I'm communicating with her on a consistent basis and not letting the mission uh, take over um, and blind me of my responsibilities and my spouse back at home. Um, right. And so another aspect of that is it's, you know, I'm able to hear from my wife as well. And we're right. able to talk about and get into, you know, deeper things as just as opposed to, well, how was your day today? Because believe me, that gets old really quick. Sure. Well, uh, Major Mullen, I want to thank you for sharing that. Um, some of the greatest leaders are the most vulnerable. And so I know that everybody listening really appreciates you providing that information and just your side of, of what you experienced. I think everybody can kind of relate to just everybody going through this whole COVID pandemic that mental and emotional health is so important. Um, and so the time you took to, you know, grow spiritually and make sure you were in a good place and doing meditation and putting yourself um, going away when you need to go away, being with your family. Um, and I think we've also realized that, you know, family and friends are just so important and that connection with other people is so yeah. important. And even just the devotional that you talked about, um, faith, hope, love, and deployments. I mean, and you're talking about deployed people, which super, you know, it definitely applies to them. But I think, you know, I could raise my hand and probably some other people that even in your own home, maybe we don't communicate and connect enough, you know, to to the people that we should be um, just with day-to-day stuff. So I think yeah. what you shared with us is so applicable um, to the people that are deploying and the people at home. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Amber. Yeah. It's again, it's, it's something that is, uh, is, is near and dear to my heart. I've seen, again, I've seen, you know, the, the broken uh, relationships in deployments while folks are in a deployment and uh, it's terrible. I mean, it's a, it's a sad thing to see. Um, and so, you know, the preparation, that's why this area and this, this question is so, so key to me is a deployment's not going to make a relationship better. It's, it's going to expose, it's going to expose where the weaknesses are. Um, and, uh, you know, I just hope, I hope people really, really take that to heart, you know, especially our military members that are, are deploying and, uh, and understand that, you know, this is an area that we really need to focus on before getting that tasking. For sure. So what did um, the first 30 days of your deployment look like? Because of my first two, I knew what to expect, um, but it's still not enjoyable, right? <laughs> it's kind of like not... having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, you know, uh, it's something you're excited for. You, you know, at first you're like at shock that you get the task and you're like, oh man, yeah, this is going to be challenging. And, you know, it's probably, it's, it's a ta- uh, deployment is never at the right time, right? It's always mm-hmm. at the worst time possible. But after a while you start, you start getting excited about it. And, you know, you start seeing that, oh, it's going to, you know, it's going to be an adventure and I'm, 
you know, just things I'm going to learn and um, start looking forward to it, which of course is where I was at, but it still doesn't make the first 30 days any easier because mm -hmm. you're flying, you know, when you leave your home station, you know, everything is on the rotator time timeline. It's on the timeline to get you in by your orders. And so you're flying, you're flying, you know, halfway across the world in my situation, you know, some, there's some stateside deployments, onesies, twosies here and there, but mm -hmm. for a lot of us, we're flying, you know, to the Middle East, um, halfway across the world. And the flights are all like in the middle of the night, taking off at night, we, you know, landing layovers in the middle of the night. So your whole schedule is just thrown off. So there's a lot of uncomfortableness, you know, if that's a word, mm -hmm. uh, throughout that process just to get there. So when you, when you actually land, you're just told, you know, you, you don't know where you're at, what you're doing, you know, what time of day it is or even what day it is. And so you're just kind of like, kind of lost out of it. And so hopefully, you know, especially in contracting where we really try to take care of our own, um, hopefully you've got a really good sponsor. Um, I had a guy, you know, really good. He met up with me um, and picked me up at the terminal station and, you know, really took care of me, had a place for me um, lined up. And so that is definitely, you know, um, something to be grateful for. But, you know, the first 14 days, once you get in ground, it's just going to be this, like this churn, this churn of, of, you know, fire hose effect of like, Hey, you know, this is all the things that you need to know because typically you're, you know, your predecessor, your sponsor, he's, he or she is trying to get back home now that you're on ground. Right. And so he wants to, he or she wants to start doing takeover, which is understandable, right? They've been there six, seven months. They really want to get home. Right. So, you know, you're, you're getting through the jet lag. You're getting through, um, you know, the fire hose effect and, of learning the job and the team and office dynamics and all those kind of things, um, the mission. And then you're also figuring out, okay, well, you know, what, what room am I going to be in? Um, you know, in my situation, they had me go to basically a, a temporary facility until another room opened up. So I was in that temporary facility that had no, no AC and it was like 125 degrees in September. And it was just very uncomfortable. Just everything about it was just uncomfortable. Right. But, you know, slowly over the course of about, you know, the next two weeks. So, you know, between days 10 to day 30 day 20, maybe, you know, you start figuring out the routine, you start figuring out where things are at. Um, you know, you start understanding, okay, where's the BX, where's the commissary. You can start going places without having to be, you know, walked or guided or whatever. And things quickly, you know, start getting into the routine into the, to what becomes normal for your next six months. Mm -hmm. But again, it's that, it's that first 14 days or so where it's just, it's just, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? <laughs> you start asking yourself these questions, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, it quickly just, it's one of those things where you just kind of, you just got to get through, just push through, push through. And then the normalcy starts happening and you start getting into the routine again. And, um, and, you know, and soon, you know, where I was at, they give you a bike and, you know, then I got my permanent room and, you know, typically you're sharing you're sharing a facility. Sometimes you're not, sometimes you are. Um, but you know, just those kind of things to, to expect. And, um, you got to remember how to be a good roommate again and all those kind of things. But, but through it all, you know, you're, 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 you're meeting new people and, 
Um, you know, maybe sometimes you're seeing people there that you've, you know, been stationed with in the past or whatever. And, you know, those are exciting moments. Um, and you're meeting all new people. And so it's exciting. Um, it's a, it's a good, it's a good time. And it's a, it's a, a moment in time where you're just going through a lot of uncomfortableness, but at the same time, a lot of growth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's one of the things, one of my mentors said, just get on, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> you can do that. You can make it through. You can do anything. Yeah. That's good advice. You probably you might have touched on some of these already, but um, what challenges did you experience and how did you overcome them? Yeah. So, you know, I talked about how no one outside of contracting really understands contracting. <laughs> um, and that, that just comes with training folks and building that, um, that reputation that you know what you're talking about, you know how things uh, operate in the environment and um and you're providing that sound strategic business advice the other one though i mean this deployment being in kuwait right um the cjtf oir mission uh was to support the defeat of isis in iraq and syria and jordan um so yeah we were in kuwait very safe place and all that but the mission that we supported was for folks that were in a dangerous environment mm -hmm. and so during this period was September 19 to March of um, 2020. We just had a number of things happen, world events happen that I, I just, I never would have had, have expected um, to happen to be quite frank. One of the events, if you, if you recall, is the Turkish incursion, what they called the Turkish incursion. You know, that was when in Syria, the, the um, Kurdistan forces and the Turkish forces, both of which are U.S. allies, they do not get along. And so eventually Turkey said, no, we're, we're done um, with, with the Kurds, Kurdish forces coming up and closer and closer to our territory. And so they started coming down and the U.S. had to make a decision on which ones we were going to support. Did we support a NATO ally or did we support these uh, Kurdish forces that have been our allies in effectively eradicating ISIS. Oh my gosh, what a predicament to be in. Wow, so yeah. what do we do? What we ended up doing was moving a lot of our forces around, taking control of some oil fields and letting the Turkish and the Kurdish forces hash out their own issues. So we basically did nothing, but that caused a lot of churn a lot of logistics support. Again, I remember I said the OXIC was under the CJ4, which is the logistics division directorate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of what we did was um, supporting and helping and managing all the logistics of just moving folks around within Syria and figuring out, okay, what kind of life support contracts do they need? What kind of, you know, services, what kind of commodities, things like that. And that caused a lot of a lot of consternation, a lot of churn. Um, and then soon right after that, if you recall, we had the, um, the riots at our embassy uh, in Iraq. Mm -hmm. You know, they were throwing Molotov cocktails. You know, the, the claim was that it was Iranians kind of, you know, acting as if it was, you know, Iraq um, civilians. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of, lot of dynamics in that. Um, and so, you know, our, our embassy in Iraq in the green zone kind of got overrun and, you know, that caused a lot of issues as well, as far as the diplomatic relations between Iraq and um, the U.S. 
And so, you know, what did that mean? That really caused issues on allowing us to get um, items in and out of the country because there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, taxes and approvals that have to be um, authorized. Mm-hmm. And then quickly right after that, you know, there was the Iranian ballistic missile attack on both of our bases. If you remember this, this was like what really kicked off the unfortunate events in 2020. You know, most of our members will probably remember the, you know, World War Three memes going around. Um, yeah. When we took out, the U.S. took out General Soleimani, uh, who was an Iranian general in Iraqi territory. Mm-hmm. So that created firestorm between Iraq, Iran, and the U.S., particularly CJTFOIR. Uh, it's a combined joint task force. That caused a lot of consternation. So Iran, you know, in their retaliation, uh, sent or launched ballistic missiles to two of our bases. And so, you know, our headquarters being um, part of the headquarters being in Kuwait, you know, we, we weren't, we weren't out of that line of sight either. I mean, right. We were within range of Iranian ballistic missiles. And in fact, they had, they had given us personal protective equipment. So, you know, the vests and the helmets and all those kind of things, mm-hmm. because those things weren't issued to us because we're in Kuwait and it's safe there. Right. But within the Air Force chains of supply, you know, they author they gave us, you know, a quick supply of this equipment. And um, in fact, I mean, there was there was one night where we were at work, you know, our lieutenant colonel came into the office and was like, we've got intelligence that ballistic missiles are on its way and gear up and take cover. And that wow. was basically it. Yeah, absolutely. Jeez. And so I'm like, I'm like, what is going on? Where are we are in Kuwait? Right, like, right. Not supposed to be happening. Right. I told my <laughs> wife we were in Kuwait. We should be good. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. But this is the reality of right. you know, the nature of what we do. Right. And so, um, so you know, so we got our we got our gear on, and you know, we're just we're with our friends, and you know, it's like if it's if it's time, it's time, but. Um, thank goodness it was faulty intelligence um, and nothing happened that night. But the night next or two nights, I'm forgetting now, but, you know, soon after, um, within hours, Iran did launch ballistic missiles and they landed at Erbil, which is in the north of Iraq. Mm-hmm. And then also at um, a couple at Camp Taji. And, uh, you know, it really was a miracle that nobody um, lost their life. You know, there were some, um, you know, brain injuries and things like that. And, you know, equipment, equipment can always be replaced. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was a, that was a significant, a significant shift in the, in the campaign um, to realize that we can be attacked by, you know, Iran mm-hmm. and, and that it went through and, you know, by, by, by the skin of our teeth, we didn't lose anybody. Right. And so that was a major, major world event that shook up a lot of the, political, I would say the political relationships, um, the dynamics of the operation and uh, mm-hmm. the support, frankly, of, of the, you know, the members in the countries on the uh, CJTF. Um, and then, you know, just really getting towards the tail end of it, you know, COVID-19 really started picking up. And so borders were starting to be shut down between Iraq and Syria. And so, um, you know, the writing was on the wall. You know, we were starting to get Wednesday, Tuesdays here of, of folks getting confirmed COVID cases. And 
So, you know, it was just one thing after another, but through it all, our team, our little team of five folks, I mean, we just, we really banded together and um, we each had, had our own area of responsibility and, uh, you know, and everyone took ownership of their jobs. And so, you know, without, without being able to do that, I mean, we, we, we would have just been, you know, we would have been lost, but we had the right talent, we had the right people with the right mentality. Um, and, uh, and we really got the job done. Going back to the question though, um, of what challenges did I experience? So, you know, again, teaching the folks contracting, you know, working through the world events, you know, and another one on a personal level, Amber was, um, you know, I talked, I talked shortly about, you know, my wife and how important it was for me to make sure that the lines of communication remained open and that we talked about, you know, real things. The reality is it's not easy. You know, maybe, maybe it's easier for one of the, one of the member, you know, one of the husband or the wife or whatever, you know, it might be easier for one or the other. For me, it was easier. Um, just the whole, the whole experience. But for my wife, it wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. throughout this time, she was um, experiencing anxiety attacks. And, you know, I'm on the phone listening to my wife having an anxiety attack. And right. I've, I've talked to her and, you know, she's okay with me sharing this. Yeah. Um, but it's the reality. It's the reality of, of what these deployments bring uh, mm -hmm. in, in a household. And so that is incredibly tough situation to deal with. Right. Uh, but, you know, the community that we had have here, not just at the base, but the community within our local church, within our local local neighborhood, within local um, friends that we've developed and family mm -hmm. and things like that um, is really what helped us get through. I mean, we had to rely on on those on those support networks. And again, from a from you know from a man's perspective, it's like I can handle it all and, and I'll deal mm -hmm. with it and I'll manage it. But I literally could not do anything besides be there for my wife. Right. Again, the local the local community here really came together and helped us during this hard time. And uh, you know, I'm forever grateful for that. Um, but again, to our to our newer folks who maybe haven't deployed, this is this is who I'm really talking to. Is yeah. really 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 get get involved locally. Make sure you you know who who you can rely on when things get tough, because they do, they do. And if it doesn't happen your first deployment, then, you know, you know, don't think it won't happen the second one or the third one, but right. um, just understand that this is, this is the reality. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate to have that, but, you know, I really want to really want to press on those folks to, to make sure you have that support network, whatever it looks like. Right. Well, and I think it's, it's important um, just as you're saying that, you know, military spouses, they may not wear the uniform, but they're living the life um, and they're, they're, you know, putting their lives and their, their service out there for our nation as well. Um, and, yeah. and just the fact that you, you and your wife are willing to share what you've gone through, um, I think will help others because if people don't know that somebody's going through something, it's a lot harder to help somebody, right? Um, yeah. but if, if you're willing to share and your wife's willing to share and to reach out to people for help, um, and as you said, that, that did help you guys get through it. And so hopefully this helps somebody else that is going through a really tough time, you know, and that maybe even just a, 
letting people know some of their friends or family might actually help them get through that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, you, you said it perfectly, you know, our, our families are, are there serving just, just as much, if not more than, uh, you know, us actually being in a deployed environment, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're the ones holding down the fort, you know, acting as, as both parents, you know, at home and, oh my gosh, it, I couldn't even imagine doing, doing half the job of a, a single parent at home, you know, holding down mm-hmm. the fort when, you know, mom or dad is deployed. It's, it is a huge thing, again, that I just don't think it's talked about enough. And, um, you know, I hope really people, people kind of understand that. For sure. So we talked about some challenges and how you worked through those. Um, what successes did you experience in your deployment? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, I talked about the team again, and it's one of the shining um, moments to me is just how well we operated. You know, um, we all just kind of came together. We don't get to pick our teams when you deploy, right? You know, contracting, typically deploying as a one-off individual, you know, um, deployment gap that you're filling. And the team that, that, you know, I was on, um, really just just made things happen. And I mean, we got accolades all over the place, really. Um, and that was because, again, they, they came, they learned their job, they performed it to the best of their ability. And, you know, we just we just let them run with it. You know, and I didn't get it right every time. There's no way, um, you know, no one's perfect. But when you get out of the way and you let them do their job, mm-hmm. officers, enlisted, uh, civilians, you know, we're all kind of cut from a different cloth. When you say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, I'm really go, to go serve in this fashion. You're already, you're already set apart when you're willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just trusting in them that they're going to get the job done and they're going to do it well. It, it's just inevitable. It's going to happen. And they did. And they just proved, they proved everybody. I mean, we had the, you know, the vote of, you know, senior leaders on down. I mean, we just had that reputation of, you know, folks that are going to get the job done and they're going to do it well, do it well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we had everybody's trust and people, people look to us for answers and, you know, we really try to keep that going, especially, um, as I handed it off to my replacement just to stress on him, man, this is, this is the thing that, that makes us relevant. But, you know, on top of that, you know, we, uh, or a part of that, we really, we really worked um, and we made really good products. We put really great products in front of the leadership, uh, especially when we went to things like the Joint Requirements Review Board, you know, a panel of 06s and a one star. And so they knew whenever we put something in front of them that it was ready to go. Mm-hmm. Very few, less than a handful of hundreds of requirements uh, were, you know, maybe iffy on whether it was a good a good um, requirement or not and that was just because we needed to get we needed to get those in front of their eyes um, to make to get a decision made but the large part was the large part of the requirements you know approved and looked good and you know we were able to give it over to the contracting execution shops so they can get you know so they can start doing their thing and get things on contract so really proud of that one other thing is you know because because you know we had that contracting expertise and we had 
Um, also the, the guy on, you know, our chief who was an army guy, we could speak army, but at the same time, we could really get things done from a contracting perspective. We knew how things work at the contracting execution shops. One of the things when the whole Turkish incursion thing was happening, um, we were moving our folks in Syria from one base to another. And we were doing that within a very short period of time. And so one of the things that kind of came about was they did not have contractors or the equipment to remove the black water. And that's, you know, the, the water, the, the wastewater from the restrooms and showers and things like mm -hmm. that. So toxic water that if left there can really cause health damages to our folks. So that was a, that was a really, um, you know, dangerous situation, especially as our guys are trying to depart. And so, so they needed those trucks and we had uh, what's called a, a ground, you know, a ground movement of vehicles departing um, Erbil, which again is in the north, and it was going to go west to Syria, to this particular base in Syria. And so um, we had essentially 12 hours or so to get the contracting shop to buy um, or lease these vehicles, these trucks, get it onto the, the, the line hall, the ground line hall, and get it over there. And so from, from the start of the requirement where, you know, the guys in Syria said, we need a Blackwater truck to get it on to the vehicle was done. I mean, we got the, we got the requirement approved by the one star. We got, you know, the funding authorized. We got it over to the contracting shop at our bill and, you know, their contracting officers, you know, worked their magic and got the contractor to deliver two Blackwater trucks and get it onto the line hall so it could make it in time for the departure of the line hall. Once that thing goes, it's gone. Yeah. It's not coming back. Uh -huh. um, and so we, we were able to do all of that within six hours, Amber. And that's wow. you know, something I'm really proud of. Um, proud of the team. You know, it was not, it was not me. It was, it was, you know, it was Heather Shepard. It was um, the chief, the army chief. It was the leadership that bought into it. Um, but a part of that, it was just the reputation. Hey, these guys, you know, the OXIC, they know what they're doing, mm -hmm. let them work their magic, let them coordinate with the contracting folks and those contracting folks, proud to say both air force guys, they got out there, you know, they leaned forward. They knew we were going to get them the requirement approved and they made it happen as well. And so just, just, a you know, an effort from a three-star headquarters all the way down, you know, to a, um, to a contracting shop and making it happen so those guys could, you know, um, move that black water off of the base. And just a phenomenal example of, you know, when things are operating efficiently, you got the right people in the right jobs, things can really happen in just a matter of hours. That's awesome. And I mean, I think that goes back to what we talked about, about building trust with people and having those relationships in place and how that can, the impact that can have. Absolutely. So how have your deployments shaped your outlook in your current position and as a leader in the Air Force? So I think, I think the deployment has really um, given me a new appreciation for our members that serve and, and what, service, what service really means, what wearing the uniform is really um, all about. One of the things uh, I've always felt kind of uncomfortable when people would thank me for my service, you know, I always appreciated those words, but maybe just never 
um, understood it that well until this last deployment where it became more personal in the sense of, you know, my wife really having a hard time mm-hmm. and understanding that it's not just me that is serving, you know, it's, it's right. a it's family, um, it's a family thing. You know, my family is sacrificing. My kids are not able to have dad at home when, mm-hmm. when it's Christmas or Thanksgiving or New Year's or their birthdays. You know, they're sacrificing that. And my wife is sacrificing, you know, managing the household and all those things. And, and so, you know, I, 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 see, I see members wearing the uniform now in a different light. I see it as um, truly a service that um, is, is more than just the individual. You know, I see, I see how, how important the family is behind that, uh, that member that is serving. You know, whether it's somebody in uniform or a civilian or whatever, you know, it's really a a big thing to ask somebody to go away for six, seven, eight months. You include the training and sometimes it's even more pre-deployment training. And that is an absolute, uh, just uncommon, unnatural thing to do uh, for somebody, especially who has a family. It's just not like you don't see that in in industry. You don't see that anywhere else Mm -hmm. uh, besides the military. And, uh, you know, it's really given me an appreciation for what our military members do and what they sacrifice um, in support of our nation and in support of our warfighters. For sure. Well, I think that is a perfect note to end this conversation on. And I want to thank you for being on the podcast, but, um, most importantly, I do want to thank you for your service. Thank you to your wife and your kids and your family. Um, and thank you to all those the, those military members out there that have deployed the civilians, the contractors and their families um, that serve to protect our country. Thank you, Amber. It's really an honor to be on this. And uh, I'm so glad, you know, if I'm able to just help one person, you know, get their deployment or, you know, get them better prepared for deployment, then uh, I'll count this as a success. For sure. Definitely a success. If you have suggestions for topics or people to interview or feedback on the podcast, you can submit those at thecontractingexperience at gmail.com. I want to thank you all for listening to the Contracting Experience podcast. Until next time, keep connecting to the world around you.